0: Uh, often during the year we, uh, we preach through books of the Bible, so you know this year we've preached through Romans and 1 Samuel. At least that's what I remember us doing, I hope we did. Anyway, uh, but uh, over this holiday period, because I know people are in and out over these uh, next few weeks, some of you are going on beach missions and uh, holidays and CMS summer school and all that sort of stuff. I wanted each Sunday to sort of stand alone. So what we're doing is we're just taking the chance to uh, look at sort of individual little books of the Bible each week. Uh, that you might not otherwise get the opportunity to look at at other times because they're only one chapter long, so this week we 're looking at Philemon uh, this little letter of paul 's only twenty five verses long. If you want to read ahead for next week, next week we 're going to look at two John, so two John next week, which is even shorter, and then three John the week after and I sort of think of these little books as sort of like those individual little bite sized chocolate bars you know the ones you get that uh, are just enough to sort of see you through that's what these are sort of like it's sort of like an individual little bite-sized energy bar of God's word for you for the week so I hope you find them helpful but let's pray before we have sort of our first bite on Philemon our heavenly father uh, we do thank you that all of your word is inspired by you is breathed out by you and because of that we know that it is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, sometimes for rebuking us, uh, and always for encouraging us, so that we might be thoroughly equipped to uh, live lives of righteousness. So, Father, we pray now tonight that through this little book of Philemon, you might do those things in us. Where we need rebuking, you might rebuke us. Where we need challenging, you might challenge us. Where we need encouraging, you might encourage us but in all things teach us by your word this evening and we pray this in jesus name amen if you think about the christian life uh, and especially being a part of god's church which you are if you're a christian when you become a christian one of the things that happen is you become a part of god's church uh, it can be the greatest joy when we become a christian we become a part of this wonderful thing called the fellowship of believers So as Jesus puts it, when people were talking to him, he says, look, if you follow me, if you become my disciple, you might get disowned by your friends and your family. They might say to you, I don't want to know you now that you're saying you want to follow Jesus. He's saying, don't worry about that because when you become a Christian, you gain hundreds of new mothers and hundreds of new fathers and hundreds of new brothers and hundreds of new sisters. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the church He's saying you get this new family, this spiritual family, when you become a Christian, which is more wonderful than even the best earthly family. So the connection we have with one another, uh, and if you are someone who believes in Jesus, you have this connection with the other people in this room. The connection we have with one another is the most wonderful thing. And you see it at its best. You see Christian fellowship at its best when you see Christians bonding together and loving one another when they have nothing else in common. So when you see a group of Christians together who would be friends if they weren't Christians, you know, they're all the same, they come from the same social group, come from the same racial background, all that sort of thing. When you see that, there's actually nothing special about that. You can be friends with anyone, you know. But Christian fellowship, where you see the power of the gospel and the power of Christian fellowship is when you see people come together together who would otherwise not come together. But they do it because of their common faith in Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. That is Christian fellowship. Sometimes we can actually take for granted just how wonderful it is being a part of this thing called the church, the gathering of believers, the fellowship of believers. But at the same time, if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, being a part of God's church can also be very messy and very painful. Uh, if you like me have just spent Christmas with your family and with extended families and for me in-laws as well oh this is being recorded I better be careful but anyway (laughs) uh, spending time with family is a great joy but it's also painful isn't it because brothers and sisters know how to hurt one another better than anyone else and when you're with family sort of all the guards are down and all the pretenses are off and we say what we really think and so we hurt one another and that is the thing with the christian family as well we're all still sinners so we're brothers and sisters in christ but we're sinners as well and sometimes in our immaturity and in our sinfulness we let the things that divide us the things that hurt us we let those things outweigh the gospel that unites us there is nothing sadder than when christians withdraw from fellowship with other believers with other christians But strangely, it's actually when those hurts occur, it's when those divisions occur, that you actually get to see the power of the gospel most profoundly. When people have the courage and the grace to rebuke one another and repent and forgive one another because of their common faith in Jesus, when fellowship is restored despite the messiness, despite the sin, that is when you see the power of the gospel at work and the power of Christian fellowship. And that's why I love this little book. Open up Philemon now, page 1098. I don't think anyone knows Philemon well enough to not have their Bible open. It's not a book you read every day. So get a Bible. Kevin's got some at the back if you need to grab one. So put up your hand if you need it. Turn to page 1098. But why I love this little book is because it is so real and so personal. You see, Philemon is actually one of the few personal letters in the New Testament. Most of the letters were written to churches, or they were written to a leader of a church to share with the whole church. This one is written to an individual. And what it does is it gives us a real insight into the messiness, but also the joy of Christian fellowship. So let's look at it. You'll see on your outline there, I've got three headings. So the first is the introductions, which is verses 1 to 3. And that lets us know who this is about and all that sort of thing. We often skip the introduction, but don't skip the introduction here. It's quite important. And the first thing you see there, look at verse 1, is that Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean Christ Jesus has him locked up. Doesn't mean that. He's writing this from a prison cell in Rome where he is in chains and he is a prisoner because he's been preaching and telling people about Jesus. And so people in Rome didn't like that, so they had him locked up in jail. And in fact, he wrote about half the New Testament from prison in, in Rome. That's where he had the time to sit and write letters. You don't have much else to do when you're locked up in prison. And he wrote lots of, of letters there, and this is one of those letters he wrote while he was a prisoner in Rome. Uh, and while he was there, in particular, he wrote a letter we call Colossians. So you've read Colossians before in the New Testament. It's a bigger letter than Philemon. That was to the whole church in Colossae. So that was sort of the long theological letter for everyone to read. But then he tacked this little letter, Philemon, onto the end of the letter we call Colossians. Because, see, Paul didn't actually know most of the Christians in this town called Colossae. He hadn't planted the church there. It wasn't his church. But he knew one of the people well, this man called Philemon. And Philemon was a wealthy man. And actually the church met in his house. It was probably a small church and a big cha- big house. And that's how they sort of worked it. Now it seems like Philemon had become a Christian with Paul in Ephesus. So he owed his salvation to Paul. It was Paul who'd shared the gospel with him in Ephesus. And he had actually then worked alongside Paul there, preaching Jesus telling other people in that town uh, about the gospel but now he's back home in Colossae the church there meets in his home so after having written Colossians Paul writes this personal letter to Philemon so look at what Paul says to him look there from the second half of verse one he says to Philemon our dear friend and co-worker to Aphia our sister that's probably Philemon's wife Uh, And then to Archippus, our fellow soldier, that's probably his son, and to the church that meets in your home. I just want to say there, just look at what he says there about Philemon. He calls him a dear friend and co-worker, or Archippus, a fellow soldier. Wouldn't it be a wonderful encouragement if we get to heaven and the Apostle Paul says to you, hey, you are my friend and co-worker or you are my fellow soldier in the gospel. I sometimes think in my more morbid, morbid moments, what would people say at my funeral? Not that I'm intending on having it soon, but uh, Jason, you might take it for me, so uh, you know, get, this, get this down. But I mean, wouldn't that be great if people said about you, you were a co-worker in the gospel, you are a fellow soldier in the gospel. But the really interesting bit here, look again, is the way he actually includes the whole church in this letter. See, as we're going to see as we go on, the issue being raised is what we would think of as a private matter. This this is about something between Paul and Philemon. But Paul is happy for everyone in the church to hear about this. So just think for a moment, if I went away, just say I went as a missionary to Africa or something, and then I wrote a letter back, and I said, here's to the church at Church in the Bank, who now meet in a church for a little while, but we'll call you Church in the Bank. And now I've got this letter for Tim Hogan as well on the end. And in it, I've got a bit of a rebuke for Tim and a bit of an encouragement, but I'm not going to get it just to Tim. I'm going to have it read out in front of the whole church. We cringe at that, don't we? That's like our worst nightmare. But the reason that's our worst nightmare is because we've imported our Western individualism into our Christianity. The Bible, the New Testament, is much less concerned with your privacy than you are. And it's much less concerned with my privacy than I am. So Paul says, I have a word of encouragement for someone. I want other people to hear it. We sort of think that's okay. I don't mind people hearing my words of encouragement. But then he says, I've got a word of challenge for someone. I want the whole church to hear it. And that's when we cringe We say, no, 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 wouldn't it be better if you just rang me up privately and we had a meeting during the week and it was just between you and I? But Paul says, no. And that's because we don't have a high enough view of what it means to be a part of a church, to be a part of a fellowship of believers. We are meant to share our burdens with one another. We're we're meant to share our joys with one another. We're meant to share our challenges with one another. Our whole lives are meant to be entangled with one another. See, we have this idea that sort of 90% of my life is private, and I'll share a bit with my Christian brothers. I think the Apostle Paul would sort of turn that on its head, and he would say, no, you share everything with your Christian brothers. There might be a couple of things you should keep private, but the majority of things you should be sharing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But as I say now, in the hearing of the whole church, Paul switches to talking specifically to this man Philemon. So look at the second heading there. That's Paul's prayer for Philemon in verses 4 to 7. And you notice the first thing he does is he shares what he prays for him. Uh, And it's just one of the most wonderful prayers for someone. So look with me. Uh, Firstly, he gives thanks for Philemon from verse 4. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Those are the marks that someone is a Christian. Those are the things that we should look for in ourselves and in other people and give thanks to God for them. Love for the Lord Jesus and faith in the Lord Jesus, and then love for the saints and faithfulness towards the saints. When it says the saints, by the way, that's not special people on stained glass windows. The saints is any Christian. Any person who believes in Jesus is a saint, is sanctified by God. And that is the mark of a Christian. And that's what he gives thanks to God for. And what does that look like? You see it there in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. See there in verse 7, that is what I long to say for every person in this church that every one of you in your love for Jesus and for one another and in your faith in Jesus and faithfulness towards one another would refresh the hearts of other people in our church family. That is my prayer for you. Just for a moment, maybe jot it down on your outline if you have a pen. The end of this year, 2014, this is the closest we'll get to a New Year's Eve service. Who do you want to thank God for? who has refreshed your heart by their love and faithfulness this year just think for a moment who do you want to give thanks to God for who has refreshed your heart who have you seen encouraging and refreshing the hearts of others just take a moment to think about it and then give thanks for them and here's another idea maybe after church tonight if there's someone here go and thank them in front of other people so not quietly not while they're trying to go out to the bathroom and you know, that sort of thing, in here, in front of other people, say, Byron. Byron, you have been encouraged to me too many times, so I can say this in good heart. Thank you for the way you've encouraged me this year. And say it in front of them. And what will happen is Byron will then go a bit red, like he just has there. <laughs> and, but actually, how encouraging is that for everyone else to hear that person has been an encouragement, that person has refreshed my heart in the gospel. But in addition to his thanks for Philemon, he prays something for him. It's there in verse 6. Look at it. He says, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. This is actually a really difficult verse to translate. So if you've got a different translation, you've got the NIV or the ESV there, it'll look a bit different and so forth. But I think the gist of it is clear. Uh, The word there, the key word is translated participation there. And the word is koinonia in the Greek. You know, if you've been around a while, I hate it when preachers say in the Greek, uh, your English translations are all you need to know and love the scriptures. But, But if you've been around a while, you know I've mentioned this word before, koinonia. And it's a difficult word to translate because none of the English words we use for it actually have the right meaning. So it gets translated as all sorts of different things like participation, but that sounds like I participate in a fun run you know and that's not what it's saying you know Uh, we often use the word fellowship for it but fellowship has just come to mean talking over a cup of tea after church or you know something like that but something much more powerful than that and I think the closest word we can get for it is partnership and the point that word is making is uh, that you are locked together with other Christians if you share faith in Jesus your lives are entangled with other Christians, if you share a common faith in Jesus. So here he's saying, I pray that as you grow in your knowledge of the glory of Christ, your fellowship in the faith, is that me making that noise? Who knows? Anyway, I pray that as you grow in your knowledge of the glory of Christ, your fellowship or your partnership in the gospel, in faith in Christ, may become effective. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you are a Christian, you have fellowship with other Christians just because you share faith in Jesus. And it's the most wonderful thing, whether you like it or not, you are brothers and sisters in Christ with anyone else who believes in Jesus. So you can go anywhere in the world. And if you get together with other people who believe in Jesus, you can say, you are my brother and we have fellowship, even though you don't know them from a bar of stoke. It's just this reality that's been created by the gospel. But that fellowship is effective when you actually do something about it. That fellowship is only effective when you live it out in love and patience and forgiveness and kindness and service of the other people. Sadly, there are many Christians, people who say, I believe in Jesus. There are many Christians who are ineffective in their fellowship, who for whatever reason choose not to meet together and express their fellowship in an effective way with other believers. It's that old chestnut, you've heard people ask it, people love to ask, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? What's the answer to that? In one sense, no, because you're not saved by going to church, you're saved how? By faith in Christ alone in another sense, yes, you do. Because you're saved to be a part of the fellowship of believers. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, I don't meet with other believers, then say to them, I don't think you are a Christian. I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand the gospel. Because Christ has saved you to be a part of the fellowship of believers. doesn't mean you've got to be a part of this church. You've got to be a part of a church a gathering of believers. Sadly, many Christians are ineffective in their fellowship. They withdraw from meeting with other Christians. They prioritise other things. Or even if they do meet with other Christians, they keep other Christians at arm's length. Don't let it get too personal. I don't want to share my life with you. I'm happy to spend a couple of hours with you on a Sunday evening, but I don't want to share any more than that. I don't want to share what I'm actually going through and thinking. See, when we do those things that show that we don't really value and care for these people, our fellowship is ineffective. See, this is a great prayer to pray, that our participation in the faith, our fellowship in Christ, our partnership in the gospel might show itself to be effective. But where you really see the effectiveness of our fellowship... Is when we come to difficult situations where, with other believers, as Christians, we're called to treat each other differently to how we would treat other people if we weren't a Christian. So, as nice as it is when people who have a lot in common get together and cuddle each other and say, Aren't we good friends? And that's the thing. As lovely as that is, that's not the power that I'm talking about. That's not effective Christian fellowship. See, the power of fellowship is when people come together who don't naturally have anything in common, where racial barriers are crossed, where barriers in our social situation are crossed. And you see it even more when people come together who have wronged or been wronged by the other person. And when we forgive and accept back, with no strings attached, those who have wronged us and hurt us. That's when you see the power of the gospel and the power of effective Christian fellowship. And so now we get to the main reason Paul wrote. So the apostle is now going to call on Philemon to show effective fellowship in a real and difficult relationship. That's the whole reason for the letter. He's going to ask him to do something that no one in their right mind would do unless they were gripped by the gospel. So that's our next heading, look there with me, our last heading, Truly Effective Fellowship, and that's verses 8 to 25. Now the issue Paul is writing about here is one that is totally foreign to our experience. He's writing about a runaway slave called Onesimus, and he was Philemon's slave. Now immediately that throws us, because we sort of think, well hang on, so Philemon, this supposedly godly Christian man, was a slave owner how could that be? How could he own slaves? And immediately our sympathy is with Onesimus rather than with Philemon. Uh, But you have to understand this, slavery was just a part and parcel of the ancient world. So when people started to become Christians, the world didn't just change like that. It it took hundreds of years for the power of the gospel to make changes in society. Uh, And when they became Christians, there were some who were slave owners and some who were slaves. And where you saw the power of the gospel at work was when they then went to church together as equals. So the slave owner and the slave met and sat next to each other in one of these seats. And the slave, who had to do whatever the slave owner said during the week, asked the slave owner to love him and care for him. And that's when you saw the power of the gospel at work. But some people say, I get that, but how can someone be a Christian and have slaves? surely if you became a Christian you should just get rid of your slaves as simple as that it's not as easy as that at that time in many of these places like Colossi, 80% of the people were slaves that was the way the society worked so if all the Christian slave owners just freed their slaves what would have happened to those slaves they would have starved there were no jobs for them because the whole society was built on this system Uh, It took hundreds of years to change this. So the call of the New Testament wasn't, okay, let's abolish slavery, though that came later from Christians. The call of the New Testament was slave owners, if you own slaves, love them. Don't treat them with disrespect like non-Christian slave owners do. You care for them. You provide for their needs. You care for their children. You be fair to them. You don't abuse them. You don't take advantage of them. And if the opportunity comes up, potentially you free them for nothing that was the call on a christian slave owner and the call on a slave a christian slave was don't be lazy don't look for the easy way out work hard love your master work for him as if you're working for the lord and if the opportunity is offered accept the gift of freedom and it's interesting the call the new testament made on christian slave owners wasn't let's go and change society through radical political action that wasn't what it did it was change society through your radical personal Christian living and you know where the gospel has changed society which it has done more than any other movement in the history of humanity where the gospel has changed society very occasionally it's been through political action so things like William Wilberforce who went into parliament in England a couple of hundred years ago and managed as a Christian and do it for Christian reasons to get slavery abolished you know that was political action but far more often how Christianity has transformed the world has been through the transformed lives of individual Christians showing love and grace in a way that no one else would in our personal relationships that's how the gospel transforms a society but here things had gone wrong Onesimus the slave he hadn't yet become a Christian Uh, It seems he had wronged his master Philemon. You can see that in verse 18. He may have stolen from him. We don't know. Uh, But he had definitely run away. But somehow in his travels, this runaway slave, who would have been desperate. Because understand this, runaway slaves faced the death penalty. Because the only way you kept control of that massive proportion of the population was, if you do anything wrong, you die. That was the way society worked. You know how Jesus was crucified, the majority of the people that were crucified were runaway slaves. That's what happened to you. So he would have been desperate. Somehow he gets to Rome and somehow he meets the apostle Paul and becomes a Christian. That's why Paul says there in verse 10, I fathered him while I was in chains. Isn't that a great expression? The person who shared the gospel with you so that you would become a Christian fathered you. Some of you, your father might be in here and you're not related to him by blood or mother, not to use sexist language. But what Paul's saying is, I became this man's spiritual father. And what you see in Onesimus is a wonderful example of how the gospel changes people. You know how sometimes people get referred to in the Bible and now for 2,000 years we know of them in a, in a bad way? like those two poor women in Philippians, you read Philippians, Euodia and Syntyche, who Paul says, stop your bickering. So now for 2,000 years, Christians read about Euodia and Syntyche as these bickering women who need to be rebuked by an apostle. Well, in the same way, poor old Onesimus is called useless. That's what he was like before he became Christian. You see, before he became a Christian, the apostle says he was useless. He was a troublemaker. He was probably lazy. He was dishonest. But having become a Christian... He totally changed. He cared for Paul while he was in prison, off his own bat. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 11. He says, Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. That is what becoming a Christian does it changes people radically. We become a new person when we come to know Jesus, we put off selfishness. And laziness and greed or whatever other things characterized us before. And by the Spirit's work in us, we put on generosity and grace and love and selflessness and faithfulness and all those things. And Paul says, I have seen that in Onesimus. So much so that he'd become an indispensable help to him. And really, he wanted him to stay in Rome and basically be his assistant there in Rome. But Paul knew that now, as a repentant sinner, Onesimus had to go back and face the music from Philemon. This is something we don't often talk about. But when you become a Christian, part of repentance is seeking out the people you have wronged and making it right. See, repentance is not saying from Rome, I'm really sorry what I did to those people in Colossae. But they're a thousand kilometers away, so there's nothing I can do about it. Repentance is saying, I will go back there and face the music. And this is the incredible thing. Just visualize this for a second. They've got this letter from Paul, Colossians, and standing there behind the bloke who's delivered it is the runaway slave, Onesimus. He's in the room. He's in Philemon's house as he gets this letter and as it gets read out in front of everyone. Here he is standing there in front of the man he's wronged. Now, Philemon would be in his rights to just slap chains on Onesimus. Uh, If he really wanted to push it, he would be in his rights to have him arrested and put to death. That would be legally what he would do and probably what most non-believers would do. Certainly, the most generous thing a person would do is take him back as a slave and keep him in chains so he can't cause any trouble. But now, Paul says to Philemon, now, this is your opportunity to show effective christian fellowship and so paul says i am sending him back to you for you to do as you want but my hope is that you will do something radical you will accept him back not as a slave but as a christian brother look at what he says in verse 15 he says for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time So that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you understand just how radical this was, what he was calling on him to do? But that is what people, gripped by the gospel, do. They do radical things. That is what people who understand the power of effective Christian fellowship do. They give up their rights. This was going to cost Philemon a lot of money. It was going to cost him a lot of shame to do this. People are going to think he's a soft slave owner. You see, he's saying, I am not going to demand restitution. I'm not going to demand he even pays me back. But that is what Christians do. We love and we welcome the person who has wronged us. That is the sort of radical effective fellowship in the faith that I praise God for when I see it in our church and that I long to see more of in every individual in our church. There's one more thing to notice here. Paul could have commanded Philemon to do what he wanted. He's the Apostle Paul. He could have said, Philemon, I command you to take this man back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And really, Paul really wanted him to send Onesimus back to Rome with a bag full of money to support him. Like all missionaries, that's what he was asking for. You see, that's what Paul really wanted. And he he could have commanded him. He's the Apostle Paul. He has the right to. He's commissioned by Jesus himself. He has the authority of God, but he doesn't command him. Look at verse 8. He says, For this reason... Although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. Or look down at verse 13. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. Can I be uh, really honest with you at this point? As your pastor in the Lord, and hey, it's right near New Year's Eve, so you know, it's a time for real honesty. Not that I'm ever actually dishonest, from it. anyway, but you know what I mean. There are times with individuals here where I just want to command you. I want to say, stop being an idiot, stop doing this foolish thing you are doing, start prioritizing Christian fellowship get it right. There are times when I want to command you, or I just want to sort of ring you up on a Monday morning and say, what's going on? Stop being a fool. Are you a Christian? Do you get it? But you see, if you changed because I'd bullied you into it, that's not effective change. It's not real change. What the Apostle Paul wants is radical, effective fellowship that is motivated by love, not obligation. Love for Christ, our Saviour and our Lord, but also love for Paul himself, who had fed him from the Gospel, who'd fathered these men, and love for a Christian brother who didn't deserve it. See, and that's the thing. I don't want you, God doesn't want you, more importantly. God doesn't want you to show that radical Christian effective fellowship out of obligation. God doesn't want you to show it because I command you and you feel bad for letting me down. As tempting as it is for me to command you sometimes. See, God wants us to live like this because you are gripped by the gospel. That's why he wants you to live like this. Because you so know the love of Christ that you want to show it to others. For some of us here, there are direct applications of Philemon to do something about before the sun goes down, which isn't very long, tonight. So there are some people here, I don't know everyone's situation here, but there are some people here who hold a grudge, have a grudge against someone else in the fellowship of believers. I want to say to you, there is a direct application for you from Philemon tonight. Are there people you need to go and seek forgiveness from? Are there people you need to seek out and forgive Are there people you need to sort of show that effective Christian fellowship to? That's a direct application. If you're in that situation and you know there's a person here as part of Church in the Bank or a Christian brother or sister who you avoid, who who, who you don't talk to because you feel they've hurt you or something like that, you should seek them out and do something about it. But I want to say for all of us, there is another simple application and it's my prayer for every one of us here. And that is that you might be so gripped by the gospel. You might be so gripped by the love of Jesus that you might, not out of obligation, but out of your own free will, you might decide to be truly effective in your Christian fellowship, in the faith, with this group of people gathered here. I think that would be a great New Year's resolution. You know, that you might truly prioritize this fellowship. That you might say, I'm going to be an effective Christian this year. I'm going to be effective in my fellowship. I am going to seek to love and care for and radically support all of these people who know and love the Lord Jesus with me. Maybe there's a New Year's resolution in that for you. But can I tell you, as your pastor in the Lord, when I see that happening, you know, when I see people. Showing that effective Christian fellowship in practice. I say with the Apostle Paul what he says in verse 20. Look at it there, where he says, Yes, brothers and sisters, may I have joy from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. There is nothing that makes me more joyful and refreshes my heart as a pastor of the gospel more than when I see people loving one another, forgiving one another, and showing the priority. and and reality of effective Christian fellowship in the way that this letter calls on us to do. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because of the love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints that we see in our church family here. But now we pray that our participation in the faith, our fellowship in the gospel, may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. And we pray that it might be said of each of us here that the hearts of other saints have been refreshed through our faith and love. And so we ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ might be with our spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.